Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now it is in the perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the 4-Hour Body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to attempt to deconstruct world-class performers, whether they come from the worlds of sports, business, entertainment, or otherwise, to distill the habits, routines, belief systems, life lessons, etc., that hopefully you can use or find impactful in some way. And this episode is one of those episodes that I was very, very nervous about. And that doesn't happen to me terribly often, but it was the case this time around because I was asking questions of someone who is no stranger to asking questions herself. Katie Couric, at Katie Couric, is an award-winning journalist, New York Times bestselling author, and co-founder of the nonprofit Stand Up to Cancer, which has raised more than $500 million to fund scientific research teams. She launched her production company, Katie Kirk Media, in 2015, and her podcast, the aptly named Katie Kirk Podcast, features conversations with some of the biggest names in politics, media, and popular culture. Kirk's documentaries include Gender Revolution, subtitle A Journey with Katie Kirk, which was for National Geographic, Under the Gun, 
which aired on Epics, and Fed Up, which can be found on Netflix. Kirk's upcoming six-part National Geographic series, America Inside Out with Katie Couric, premieres on April 11th, and I recommend you check it out. We dig into the reasons why, but the subject matter is, in many cases, very, very fascinating to me. Katie joined CBS as the first woman at the helm of an evening newscast after a 15-year run as co-anchor of NBC's Today Show. Her awards include a DuPont Columbia, Peabody, two Edward R. Murrows, a Walter Cronkite Award, and multiple Emmys. She has spent a lot of time in the trenches. She has interviewed some incredibly, incredibly influential, powerful figures who have helped to shape the culture that we're currently a part of. And I was nervous. Coming into this one, which you can hear in the audio, you can see in the video on uh, my YouTube, uh, youtube.com forward slash Tim Ferriss. And for that, I apologize. But hey, you know, we're all human. And uh, I'm, I'm very impressed by what she has done. And hopefully... Uh, do that justice with digging into some of the areas that I attempted to dig into. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with the ever-impressive Katie Couric. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. This is fun, and I like the setup, and I like the view. The view of beautiful Austin, Texas? Yeah, it's really been fun, actually. This is my first South by Southwest Welcome I know to the that chaos. I know people call it South by. I'm going to make it even cooler and call it SB. <laughs> um, but <laughs> it's it been really fun to be here, and it's been uh, really interesting for me. So thank you for having me on the show. Of course, I really appreciate you making the time. And I'll, I'll be honest, I feel a little bit like that that petulant Luke Skywalker in the first Star Wars. Everyone's <laughs> like, oh come on, when he's hanging out with Obi Wan, <laughs> and just missing the point because I'm sitting here asking questions of someone who's asked more questions of more presidents and dignitaries <laughs> than I'll ever even have a chance to meet. So I apologize in advance if I make any oh, novice stop. mistakes. But you know what? I think that if you just are curious about people and your curiosity is genuine and you're truly interested in someone, uh, I think any that that's really what makes a good interviewer. And so I, I think you have curious. that in state. So I'm I think you'll be curious. fine. Uh, I want to jump into something that I found in the course of doing my homework that led me to a number of different questions. And I said, if, if I would ever have the chance to ask, and I was like, wait a second, I do have a chance to ask. So this was something I found via NPR in an interview format. And they were asking you if there was any story that made your reputation or if there was a moment like that. And again, the internet sometimes misquotes things, so I'll, you can correct if need be. But I'll read a little bit and then I want uh, to ask a follow-up question. So I think I got noticed when I was doing a tour of the White House with Barbara Bush. I didn't think that President Bush was there and suddenly I heard this Cocker Spaniel or Springer Spaniel ultimately ends up, we arrive at Millie, that's Millie coming into the room, and President Bush was following him, and suddenly I had to do an interview with the President of the United States that I wasn't prepared to do. <laughs> I was just getting a tour of the White House. So that was sort of where I found my career path before my eyes, but I was able to come up with enough questions to keep him there for something like 19 minutes and 20 seconds. So that last sentence was the part where I was like, okay, I have to ask you if you could just walk us through that, and how on earth, like, what do you recall any of the questions? Do you recall how you kept the President... On the Engaged. hook, so to speak. Yeah, or, or just any recollections from that, because it's it's just conjures such an incredible image in my mind. Well, you can imagine, you know, when you've prepared for an interview and something completely unexpected happens. So mm -hmm. I had prepared 
endlessly to talk to Barbara Bush about the White House. It was the anniversary of the White House, and she was giving me a tour, and we were going to be talking about Dolly Madison's tea set, and we were going to talk about the ball and claw uh, legs on some of the chairs and all (laughs) kinds of things and paintings and desks and accoutrements that are part and parcel of the White House. And suddenly, as you described, it was like... And I was like, oh, God, oh, God, what's going on? And I, for some reason, thought that President Bush was out of town or that he had an appointment and that he wasn't going to be around. And it's not often that you have the president pop in to say <laughs> hi and you have no questions for him. So you just had to, that was where the rubber met the road. And I just had to pull all these questions, you know, pretty much out of my ass to ask the president, you know, the most powerful man in the free world. So I think I asked him about Iran-Contra. I asked him about, uh, he was running against Bill Clinton. So I asked him about that campaign. I'd like to rewatch that actually Mm -hmm. to, to see how it plays out today and what I remember. But I just kept on firing away and I remember his upper lip started kind of quivering uh, because I think he too felt suddenly put on the spot. He wasn't prepared either. Exactly. And we just had this very intense kind of rat-a-tat-tat back and forth. And finally, I remember Marlon Fitzwater Mm -hmm. came in and I said, oh my gosh, here's Marlon. And I think Mrs. Bush, everyone was basically saying, okay, that's enough. Enough is enough. (laughs) And I remember saying to the audience at the time, the viewers, that Marlon Fitzwater was pulling out whatever was left of his hair because he was pretty bald at the time. And uh, yeah, that was was a, a very kind of intense situation for me. Mm-hmm. But it also showed that I could think on my feet. Now, in fairness, I also had my executive producer, Jeff Zucker, peppering me with questions behind the scenes through my IFB. I think he the was IFB nervous. IFB is the earpiece. Yeah, that if I had had a moment and suddenly had nothing to say, that he was going to leave. And of course, as somebody who really understands television and understands audiences, he wanted to keep the president on the hook as long as he could. Keep him on the ropes. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but it was fun. And I remember afterwards thinking, oh my God. And and it was well received. I think uh, Tom Shales, who's the TV critic for the Washington Post, wrote a very flattering article following that. But that was, I think, very important because, you know, when I did that job and I decided I would be the co-anchor of the Today Show, it was really important for me as a female in the business to be taken seriously and to not be relegated to the cooking and fashion segments. And in fact, when I got offered the job, I said to Michael Gartner, the then president of NBC News, I'll only do it if it's a 50-50 division of labor between me and Brian Gumbel. Mm. And I said, I, I, I had covered the Pentagon. I had worked very hard in local news. And I'd gotten some very good advice early in my career to not be typecast as the cute girl who does features. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it was important, and that was validation in a way that, yes, I could have a fun personality, but I could really get serious and ask serious questions, penetrating questions when I needed to, even if I wasn't prepared. I mean, I, I want to ask you about the sort of the chutzpah where that comes from, but is that a trained skill? Is that something innate to you? How did you end up developing that level of I, aggression is too strong a word, but. 
that ability to capitalize on an opportunity like that. Chutzpah, I think, is a yeah, good word. Right? Or moxie. moxie. My dad used to say I had a lot of moxie, mm-hmm. which I love that word. It's a good word. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I think it's inherent in my personality. I think I have been pretty guileless, if that if that's an, uh, kind of a synonym for moxie in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I've always been pretty uninhibited and very open and very willing to go there wherever there might be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I've always had a fair amount of confidence in myself, although it's wavered, you know, from time to time through the years. But um, yeah, I think... I think having super supportive parents obviously probably fed into that. Um, but I also think it's a little bit in my DNA as well. A little hardwired. Yeah, I do. In. I actually do. And uh, been sort of always fairly fearless and not hesitant to be out front and running for vice president when I was in fifth grade and president of my elementary school when I was in sixth grade and... Wanted, always wanted to be a student leader and that kind of thing. Very Tracy Flick mm-hmm. from Election. Would you like a piece of gum? Did you remember that movie? Did you see that with Reese Witherspoon? Uh, yes, actually, I have seen it's it. It's actually a very, yeah. very funny movie. Mm-hmm. It kills me. But um, I'm not too Tracy Flickish, but a little. And um, so so I think I just have always had, had chutzpah. All right. So I have... You have forgotten more interviews than I'll probably ever do. But even in my short stint doing a podcast, we're just around 300 right now. Wow, uh, that's a lot. It's a decent number. I mean, I'm so getting, do you do it every week? I publish on average six a month. Six a month. Six okay. a month. So there. And I, is it what is your publishing schedule? Uh, the publishing schedule is two weeks per month. We'll have two episodes, and two per month we'll have a single episode. I'm thinking of reducing that down to once per week. Uh-huh. But I record them. I typically record them in batches and then schedule them out in advance, particularly uh-huh. if they're more complex involving video. So um, do you find that sometimes they're not topical because you don't do them around the time this they're published? This is a good question. So I deliberately avoid topical subjects. Uh-huh. And uh, this that's is smart, I guess, so they can be evergreen. That's right. And this there are trade-offs though. So there are people who I've watched very closely who are in my let's call it peer group in the in the podcasting world who are very very good at tracking the headlines, finding names, inviting those people on and riding the wave of Google juice effectively, the the trend in traffic and search queries to drive traffic to their podcast. And that's very, very effective, but I don't want content. If I get hit by a bus tomorrow and I've been very, uh, I shouldn't say I've been unfortunate. I think it's part of life, but I've had a number of very close friends and also family members, uh, pass away in the last say 12 months. And it just reminds me that I could get hit by a bus tomorrow and I don't want to have put out only subject matter that has an expiration date. I really want it to last. So whether it's a blog post or an interview, I'd love for there, at least, even if there are topical components, to be themes and lessons that transcend a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. And that actually leads me to my question, which is even in my relatively short stint... Nice segue, by the way. Thank you, thank (laughs) you. No, it's true though, because what, what I'm dying to ask you is related to nervousness. I've had a number of interviews and episodes where I've really been nervous for different reasons, 
And uh, that has led me to prepare in different ways and respond in different ways. Are there any interviews that come to mind over your career that you were particularly nervous about beforehand? Yeah, I mean, I think throughout my career, obviously, dignitaries, heads of state. I remember I interviewed Yasser Arafat. I was very nervous about that. Ross Perot was very pugnacious and kind of ornery. And you never (laughs) knew what he was going to do. I think... You know, live interviews are really scary. Yeah, for sure. Because you can't, you know, edit things out. You can't ask a question over again in a more eloquent way. And you're really on the spot. So I think live interviews would make me nervous. I remember I was supposed to interview with Tom Brokaw, O.J. Simpson, uh, after he was uh, acquitted. And I was a nervous wreck at the very thought of it, because I thought, first of all, I'm not a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. I, my husband, at, at, who had passed away later, but who was alive and covering a lot of the OJ trial, knew everything. He was a criminal defense, white collar criminal defense lawyer. And I just remember thinking that this is just a no win situation. Right. First of all, I can't retry the case, nor could I, because right. I don't really have the talent or the skills to do that. And secondly, it was so divisive and polarizing that whole situation and so racially charged. And I, at the time, and still do to a certain extent, just hated like people attacking me. And I thought it was just a no win situation. So when he bailed, I wanted to do a happy dance. I was so excited. (laughs) So, you know, situations like that would make me extremely nervous when I saw so much risk and so much downside and very little upside. Right. Um, but, But I think whenever I'm interviewing people who are really smart and really knowledgeable about a certain area and I don't know nearly as much as they do, that can be hard. And I think also when you're interviewing somebody about a wide range of public policy mm-hmm. and you're not you're not necessarily a policy wonk that's challenging too but you know to go to the white house and interview a president either live or even on tape is really stressful interviewing sarah palin when i interviewed her mm-hmm. because i thought it was so important to strike the right tone ask the right questions and uh, it was a very critical time, I think, to understand her motivations and actually her abilities. So um, I, I still get nervous when I have big interviews. In the case of, let's take Palin as an example, how did you prepare for that? Can you walk us through oh, yeah. some of your preparation? Well, I think um, I worked with my friend Brian Goldsmith, with whom I do a podcast. Mm-hmm. He's sort of my partner in crime on the podcast. He's a very, very smart person who really po- follows politics and public policy very closely. And we worked together at CBS. And when I found out she was going to do the interview, we just immediately started to read everything we possibly could about her, about Alaska, about um, you know everything that was germane to that the presidential campaign, what was going on in the country. I called Madeleine Albright. I called Sam Nunn. I called Richard Haas, who's the head of the Council on Foreign Relations. I called people and I said, hey, I'm interviewing Governor Palin. Of course, everyone knew was 
in tune with what was going on in the campaign. And I'd say to them, what do you think are some of the areas that you think are really important that the American people need to know about and hear her perspective on? Um, So I would ask people, I think I asked a few other correspondents about it, um, read a lot. And, you know, you also have to make some very difficult choices because, as you know, you know, there are probably a lot more questions than you have time for than your guest has time for. So um, then we had had to winnow them down. And um, but it was also really important for me to, uh, you know, make sure my tone was right. Yeah that my approach was right, that I, I I remember going in and saying I would have an almost Parkinsonian affect with very little facial expressions. I didn't want people to misinterpret that I was looking at her like mm, what or right. askance. And, uh, and, and Madeline Albright offered me, I think, the best piece of advice. She said, just let her talk. Hmm. And I think so often in conversations, I don't know if you find this true in a podcast because it may be different since things can be edited, but you try to fill the empty spaces and people feel very uncomfortable with silence. And I know I do because I want to make sure that I keep the conversation going. And then, of course, in live television, you can't have these, (laughs) you know, dead dead air. (laughs) But I I really took that advice to heart. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't jump in. I wouldn't jump in to rescue her if she was giving a convoluted answer. I wouldn't jump in if she felt awkward. I wouldn't jump in if she paused. I just mm-hmm. let her talk and didn't. And I really resisted that temptation, which I have because I'm a pleaser and mm-hmm. I want to make sure people feel comfortable. Um, so we spent probably three solid days preparing for that interview. And I really wanted to ask questions that required accumulated knowledge and critical thinking. So I wanted to talk about big issues. And, you know, honestly, I'd look at some of those questions and I'd say, I don't know how I would answer that, but I'm also not a public policy expert. Right. Um, But I tried to ask questions that weren't gotcha questions, even though she insisted they were, but that people deserve to know, A, how much she knew about any given subject and how she would approach it and what her thinking was. And what became abundantly clear is she just wasn't ready mm-hmm. to be put in this position. She wasn't ready for prime time. And it had nothing to do with her gender. I just think her experience and her perhaps lack of intellectual curiosity did not equip her to do an interview about substantive issues facing mm-hmm. the country or the world. Let her talk. Uh, I really love that. Uh, so I got have had the chance to become friends with someone named Cal Fussman, uh, who is one of the senior writers who worked on the What I Learned column for Esquire for decades and has interviewed million different people. And I, I asked him for feedback when I was starting the podcast to read some of the transcripts and to see if he saw opportunities for improvement. And he said, such a nice guy, real sweetheart of a guy. And he said, let the silence do the work <laughs> mm-hmm. because I was trying to rescue people. If I asked a question and it started meandering or something like that, I would jump in and he goes, no, 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 no. You need to give them more space and give them time to follow up or to add to their answer. But it's, I think it's very unnatural, even if you're not a pleaser as a human being in conversation, it's, it's, it's unnatural to leave a lot of 
space. Yeah. But as an interviewer, it's really, it seems really, really useful. Uh, you mentioned Ross Perot and uh, him being pugnacious. Mm-hmm. Is there a toolkit or a more effective way to respond to someone in an interview if they are ornery or pugnacious? Or combative? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think, I think it depends on the situation. Uh, I remember he was like, Katie, 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 you know, sort of admonishing me like I was a misbehaving fifth grader or something. Um, But I think, uh, you know, that's a hard, I I don't know. I think you just have to kind of stand your ground Mm -hmm. and not be intimidated. I think people like that want you to back down or want you want to make you uncomfortable and and mm-hmm. and make you ill at ease and catch you off guard. So I think you just have to really work at maintaining your composure mm-hmm. and not be thrown by it. And that's very hard on national television to not be thrown by someone kind of scolding you. Right. Well, it's, you mentioned the facial expressions and so on, which is something I haven't even considered because this is my very first few experiments in video. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm not now I'm like, Oh my God, what have I been doing with my face? But, uh, if you're being scolded on national TV, it's not just what you say. It's also how you respond. Right. Of visually. course. Of course. So you really have to have trained a poker face or at least some awareness, self-awareness yeah. through the profession. That seems I, I really would definitely, hard. Uh, I would definitely get fired if my thought bubbles ever became public. <laughs> That's for damn sure. But on, on the flip side, are there any interviews that you, that come to mind? You've had so many, uh, but where after you're done, you just in the moments finishing the interview, think to yourself, God, I hope the equipment was working. Like, I really hope we caught that because it was so good. Are there any that come to mind where you're like, oh, wow, that was really, that's one that I'm really proud of. Yeah. I mean, a lot, uh, I think one that's sort of that I I usually dust off when I'm asked this question is one I did after the massacre at at, uh, Columbine High School. And it was 4, maybe 4 a.m. Colorado time is how many hours behind New York? Two or three? Is it three? Mountain time. Two. Two. So it was 5 a.m. And it was April. And yet... And so the sky was pitch black, but it was snowing. So it was this very dramatic scene. And I interviewed Michael Scholes, who had lost his son, Isaiah, and Craig Scott, who had lost his sister, Rachel. And they were so broken, understandably broken, shattered, not even broken. They were shattered. And it had happened the day before. And they came on the Today Show which I think is always such an interesting thing. Why do people in this grief-stricken state come to talk about their loved ones? I've always been fascinated by that and thought it would be a really excellent thesis for a psychology student about grief and sort of the public acknowledgement of grief. And anyway, they came and uh, <clears throat> and it was just a heartbreaking interview and to witness them kind of looking to each other for comfort. Michael Scholes was a big, burly black guy. And Craig Scott was this sort of angelic, toe-headed teenager. 
And I've actually stayed in touch with Craig Scott. And they held hands uh, during the interview. And it was just, it was sort of the the personification of loss and sorrow in these two people. And just holding on to each other for dear life, it was really profound. It was really, I was witnessing it less, uh, I was witnessing it more than interviewing them, you know, because they were in this particular space and I was an observer, really. So... I always think about that interview as being, after it was over, a really important interview for people to watch. And I hope I handled it in a sensitive, thoughtful way that both respected them as human beings, but also guided them so they could express themselves. You know, there are situations where you just really want people to... You really want to help them get through it. I mean, there are all kinds of situations. I'm sure in all the interviews you've done, there are some cases where, you know, you want to afflict the comfortable. <laughs> and there are other cases definitely. when you want to comfort, comfort the afflicted. And that was definitely the latter. Mm. And so uh, just helping them through it. And uh, that was a really important I don't want to say special, but significant experience for me as a person. So I want to, I want to explore this. I'm writing down that line. There are times when you want to flick the comfortable, times when you want to comfort well, the afflicted. Well, that's what they say is a journalist's job, Wow, right? I've never heard that before. No? No. Uh, but that's really useful, heuristic. Uh, I want to talk about grief a bit. So I've... Uh, I've lost a number of, like I mentioned, close friends and a mentor in the last 12 months. And uh, you mentioned your husband uh, who passed away earlier. Uh, and if I get any facts wrong, obviously, please correct yeah, me. But colorectal worry. cancer, mm-hmm. 42. Mm-hmm. I'm 40, which really mm-hmm. caught my attention. And my the first time I had an opportunity to go abroad outside of the United States was to Japan as an exchange student. And I lived with a family, went to a Japanese high school, and I'm still close to that family 25 years later. And the father in that host family is my second father, effectively. And I planned on bringing my American family to Japan later this year to meet them for the first time, my two families. And I just found out that my host father is in the hospital, uh, late stage, very aggressive cancer, diagnosed... Uh, as metastasized, probably will pass away in the next two months. And what kind of cancer? Uh, it's. I would have to go back to the email because it was it was very uh, emotional and then cognitively difficult for me to translate because it was a lot. It's in Japanese mm, and it mm. was all specialized medical terminology. Uh, uh, but it's it's in the lung, it's in the liver. Uh, lifelong smoker, very typical for Japanese of that age. I think it might be also esophageal, but, um, and it's a, I, I know that it has, it's now also in the lymph nodes. Uh, so he's intubated in a hospital and only mm. the mother and the, the brothers can, can visit. Uh, so this is, has had me thinking about grief and uh, is there anything I should do in advance to prepare for that? And I'd just be very curious if you're willing to talk about it, to describe your experience of, grieving and you could start at any 
point in time, but as it relates to your experience with with your husband, and certainly after that, we can get into it. But I mean, you've done a tremendous job of of highlighting the types of diagnostic tools and uh, preventative tools that people can use, which, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about. But I don't even know how to think about grief. I mean, I don't know if I've allowed myself to ever experience it before, but I know I'm going to be hit with a hammer. I thought, though, you had a couple of friends and a I mentor. Did. No, I did. They have passed away. And it's been very recent that it hasn't been this close. Like mm-hmm. These are friends, but they're not a second father to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think in a sense, the, um, the mentor who passed away did hit me pretty hard. But I've only in the last six to 12 months actually been allowing myself to feel more things. That's a much longer story. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, I've had a lot well, you of... you have a kind of uh, conflicted relationship with this person? Uh, no, I've had a lot of armor for decades that uh-huh. I've built up over time for a lot of different reasons. And um, it's been very useful for some things, mm-hmm. uh, for protecting me, but I've realized that it also keeps a lot in that is very ultimately corrosive. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to develop more of an ability to feel and s- instead of looking at it as a liability. Um, Gosh, so. I don't know. How do you, how do you describe grief? Um, I mean, I can, I can talk a little bit about my personal experience. You know, I had a, I was on top of the world, had this great job, had two beautiful children and of course a wonderful husband uh, I have to say we were having challenges, some challenges in our marriage, because I think I had this just sort of out of the blue success and some suddenly became a household name and had all this attention, which I think can put a lot of pressure on a relationship yeah. where suddenly it doesn't feel the power dynamic doesn't feel right. as equal. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, we were we were really, you know, in love and enjoying our lives and, uh, you know, just out of the blue. Jay hadn't been feeling well. He had been tired. He'd been traveling. And we kept thinking, oh, we have two little kids. He's covering the O.J. Simpson trial. He was, uh, you know, his schedule was crazy. And then out of the blue, he just was doubled over in pain and our nanny who was Irish at the time called and said, Jay's doubled over in pain and, uh, I don't know what to do. So he didn't have a doctor like so many young men, which is, you know, if anybody takes, there are many, I think, takeaways from our conversation, I hope. But one is that men, especially, I think because women go see gynecologists, honestly, right. that a lot of men don't go and get physicals or they don't even have a GP or an internist. And Jay was one of those guys who played lacrosse and football and in college and was never smoked ever. I don't think he ever even tried a cigarette. He never, I don't think he even tried pot ever. It's sort of crazy when you think about it. Drank moderately, uh, took pretty good care of himself, I mean, and, uh, and it just, boom, he had stage four metastatic colon cancer. So we went from one day, just everything was great. We were buying a house in the country and, or had a house in the country and we're really enjoying that. And Jay was riding horses in Central Park and doing his thing professionally. And I was at the Today Show and our girls were great. And, uh, we had, I mean, Carrie was less than a year at the time or just had turned a year old. 
when he was diagnosed on April 3rd, 1998, 1997, sorry, he died uh, nine months later uh, in January. But, um, you know, it's just, it's so, it's so debilitating and shattering and destabilizing. And, you know, it's such a process and I was in such denial, and he was one of these very smart people, but he didn't want to know about his health. He didn't want to know the gory details. I don't know why, because he was so smart, intellectually curious and interested, and I don't know, maybe he knew. Mm -hmm. So I kept all this stuff from him, which I really regret. I would say, oh, there's only shadows on your liver. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. Uh, We're going to figure it out. I remember sending his scans to NIH, you know, because I had a lot of connections because of my job. And I remember very prominent cancer scientists calling me and saying, oh, God, this is this is really bad. He I arranged for him to get a hepatic artery pump, which pushed the chemo directly to his liver that was covered. I mean, the tumor burden on his liver was awful. And uh Anyway, so I was I went into I think my my husband John says I'm very good in an emergency. You know, I get very focused and very proactive and driven and I went into I am going to try to fix this mode. And uh so I was sort of doing that I think to avoid the grief cuz I had to do something. Right. And it it was just I mean, what can I say? It's the worst thing in the world to see someone First of all, your life just changed in an instant. Then to see someone suffering, then to try to figure out how can you help somebody. I mean, it's just, it's really overwhelming. And, uh, you know, I think my grieving process began the day he was diagnosed because my doctor, who was the internist Jay went to see when he was in this pain, you know, he pulled me aside into one of those little patient rooms in the hospital and said, it's, it's the, this is really bad. The, the prognosis is very bleak. So what do you do with that except for do everything you possibly can to change the outcome, which you realize you probably can't change? Anyway, it's a very uh, challenging thing to deal with. But, you know, I maybe my regrets will help you with your situation in that I never really said to Jay, what are your hopes and dreams for your kids? Mm. Can you write the girls a letter? Can we videotape you talking to them? Uh, To say everything I wanted to say to him, because that was an acknowledgement that he was going to die, and I just couldn't do that. So maybe if things are so bleak for this person is so special to you, first of all, you need to tell him. Yeah. And you need to write him, maybe go see him, and feel that that you don't have any regrets. Thank you. So, I mean, the, the only segue I can possibly think of from that is very closely related. You can always go, what I used to do on the Today Show, on a lighter note. <laughs> well, this... <laughs> This is, I mean, I suppose on a lighter note, it, although it's, it's, a, it's a shade of the same color. Uh, so, there's, so there's a very uh, 
interestingly titled paper in an academic journal. And the title is, quote, The Impact of a Celebrity Promotional Campaign on the Use of Colon Cancer Screening, the Katie Couric Effect. And it goes on to detail the increase in the number of colonoscopies because of your awareness campaign or campaigns. Uh, so, and I was looking at this. I've read a lot of studies. And the p-values, so the likelihood that it could be attributed to chance, is really, really, really low. I mean, it's, the, the data are really compelling looking at this. Can you, can you tell us the story of how it happened? Well, that's a University of Michigan study, I think, mm-hmm. uh, that paper. And I think it was in the Annals of Internal Medicine, possibly, which I think in this case should be called the Annals of Internal Medicine. <laughs> but I basically really wanted to educate people because I didn't understand colon cancer. I didn't, I'd never really heard of it. I guess I had vaguely when President Reagan had a polyp. And I thought, gee, I have this opportunity. I have this bully pulpit. I have a platform to educate people. So um, again, Jeff Sucker, who at the time was my executive producer, he ironically had also been diagnosed with colon cancer in his 30s. And so he was a very receptive audience for my idea. And I said, can I get a colonoscopy on television? I don't, I'm too young to get one. You know, I was, wasn't 50 yet. I was only uh, 41 when my husband died. But I said, we need to demystify this procedure. So that was my thinking to just educate people. And, um, and it was sort of, this was before people were doing things like this and yeah. talking about it, but it just seemed a perfectly logical thing to do. And I think it was very helpful for me in a situation where I felt so powerless. And I don't know about you, but that's the worst feeling in the world, world to feel I powerless. I don't like that feeling. No. And so here was an opportunity for me to use whatever power I did have to maybe help other people and possibly even save some lives. So that was really the thinking. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of started me on a journey to be a cancer advocate for all kinds of cancer and to continue emphasizing the importance of screening. I'm taking a very well-known person to get his first colonoscopy next week. And, um, you know, I really appreciate people's willingness to talk about this and to spread the word and because it's so preventable. It has a 92% cure rate if it's detected early. And it's the second leading cancer killer of men and women combined. So I feel like, you know, that will probably be the first line in my obituary. I hope it won't be journalist, but it will be sort of cancer advocate. And, uh, And it's something I'm really proud of that I was willing to do. Well, I would say even at this point, it could be the first line in, a, in, in certainly a number of measurable senses, right? So you're co-founder of Stand Up to Cancer, and it, that has raised more than $500 million at this point mm-hmm. to fund scientific research teams. That's a lot of money. That's a big chunk of change. It is a big chunk of change. Yeah. And, and that was started by nine women mm-hmm. who together uh, thought were frustrated with the pace of cancer research. I think stand-up has really changed the paradigm of how cancer research is done. It's really emphasizing collaboration rather than competition, getting these institutions and, you know, pharmaceutical companies and biotech firms to actually talk to each other to pull their resources and, and their brain power, really. And it's been 
adapted by people like Sean Parker and Joe Biden Mm. when it comes to the way they're approaching cancer. So it's been a phenomenal thing. I'm so proud of these women, so proud of these scientists, because at first they weren't too jiggy about collaborating. Well, that's that's a really complex, potentially complex problem to solve. And sometimes it's worked better than others, quite candidly. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, we've been able to get three drugs approved by the FDA and a lot of promising research done because these scientists are willing to work together. Mm -hmm. And it just makes all the sense in the world. But it does, it's against our kind of very primal impulses to, you know, be credit mongering and Mm -hmm. not want to share the spotlight with people. So it's, at times it's been challenging, but now that it's been great. What are the the ingredients or the strategies that your team has used to encourage these people who have not previously collaborated to collaborate? I don't know. You know, I think they're, it's, I, I, I don't give the organization any credits, their sheer decency mm-hmm. and their their desire to really help patients mm-hmm. and to come up with better treatments for so many people who have suffered from this disease and lost the battle. So I think that, you know, it was just different. You know, people don't like change, as you know. Yeah. And it was a, just a different way of doing things. And as I said, I think in some cases, maybe it hasn't been as successful as it could have been. In other cases, it's just been amazingly successful. So, you know, these are the real heroes, by the way. Mm-hmm. These cancer scientists, first of all, they are ridiculously intelligent and brilliant people. And, you know, these are the people who should be on the cover of celebrity magazines, and they we should be doing award ceremonies for them. They, sh- they should be the real rock stars of our culture. Unfortunately, they don't get much attention. They don't get that much funding. They just don't get what they deserve as far as I'm concerned. So they're amazing. And that's been another really gratifying part of this work is to get, get to getting to know these scientists who are so selfless and so hardworking and so dedicated to helping people. I'd love to ask you about how you choose projects because what we just discussed is a seems like a very natural consequence of your personal experience and then capitalizing on the platform and the assets that you have. So it's a very natural fit. I can only imagine that you get hundreds and thousands of proposals that I'm sure other people help vet with basic criteria, but I don't really, you don't. So how do you select you must have so much inbound, and certainly throughout your career, I would imagine, I don't know. But. I mean, I don't really. I've worked for companies, you know. I worked right. uh, in local news and jumped around, which you mm-hmm. sort of had, you know, at the time you kind of had to do to get experience and become right. competent and, you know, reporting and doing on-air work. And then I worked at companies like NBC for 15, maybe 20 years, if you count my time covering the Pentagon and working in local news, so probably 20 years, then went to CBS for five, then I did a talk show for two, then I worked at Yahoo for four. So I've really worked for big companies servicing them and doing what I needed to do to hopefully contribute to mm-hmm. what you know their general mission was. And, um, and now I'm sort of 
I don't know. I'm just kind of at a weird place. I do things that I believe will have impact that give me creative freedom. Uh, sometimes I miss working for companies because I love working with people. I'm mm-hmm. a super sociable person and I like, I really get energy from other people and the atmosphere I'm in. Um, but now I, I'm just trying to figure it out and it's hard because the landscape is so fragmented and there's so few communal experiences. When I did the Today Show, I sort of felt like, oh, not everybody. I didn't, I wasn't that egotistical, but I thought, oh, a lot of people are kind of watching this and it Mm -hmm. felt kind of like a community. And now, I mean, a lot of people still watch the Today Show, but it just seems there's so many options and so many things to do with our time and this attention economy that... um, Tristan Harris talks about. Do mm-hmm. you know Tristan Harris? Yeah, I know of him. We have I love any time him. Together. You would yeah. love him. Oh, he's a fascinating guy. We're he's 33 years old. Yeah. He's a, an amazing person. I lo- I interviewed him for my Nat Geo series. But, um, you know, uh, so I just try to do things that I'm going to enjoy that I think will somehow contribute to mm-hmm. the conversation and that will get some attention. But that's hard, you know. So I think right now you just have to do things you really enjoy and like you know, devoting your time to. What are you devoting your time to right now? And I'm, I'm thinking, maybe I'm, that's a bit of a leading question, or I'm, I, I'm suppose, I suppose what I'm hoping to explore a little bit is uh, America Inside Out. And if you could tell us a, what that is yeah, and why you chose to do it. Well, I decided to leave Yahoo when it was bought by Verizon. No hard feelings. I just... It, it was never really the right fit for me, and I've I've talked about that a little bit with Kara Swisher. You probably mm-hmm. sure you know Kara. Yeah, I've had Kara on the podcast. Yeah, she's great. Oh, yeah. I really like Kara. I just like her no BS. Very no BS. She's way. great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, but I also think she's a very kind person. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not everyone who she's written about feels the same way, but um, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to explore some of these issues that I thought were not getting attention. Biz Stone, in this book I wrote about advice, mm-hmm. said if you see a need, fill it, you know, in terms of what to do with your life or if you're entrepreneurial or if you want to be of service to people. And I think basically don't we all want our, our work to matter, I think. I don't think making money is the be-all, end-all for people. Maybe it, it's easy to say that once you've made some money. But um, I wanted to explore these topics that I thought were getting short shrift in the media, that the, everything is so ephemeral now. Yeah. You can't even remember partially because there's so much happening at once. You can't remember what Donald Trump did two days ago, or you can't remember. I mean, it's so much. It's TMI, isn't it? Yeah. And I think you, you can't even digest it and think about it and contemplate it and... I felt like everything's happening so fast. Can we think about things a little more? And what are some of the things that I believe we should be thinking about? And it was, they were things that were happening before our eyes, but we weren't really giving them any consideration. So I had done a documentary for National Geographic called Gender Revolution about our changing notions of gender and how we're people are not really binary as much as they used to be with very specific male, female, blue, pink, you know, traits, and you grow up and you're this way. 
Um, and now I, this whole notion of gender fluidity and kind of being non-binary and all this stuff was really, they were relatively new concepts for me. And I had whiffed on an interview I did with Laverne Cox and uh, Carmen Carrera, less with Laverne, but with Carmen when I asked her uh, an inappropriate question about her genitals, basically, her private parts. And I, I taped the interview, and at the time, I thought, she was quite offended and told me why. And I said, I'm, when the producers asked, I said, keep that in because I want people to understand why that's an offensive question. Mm. If you don't mind me asking, what was the question? I said, what's the situation with your private parts, mm-hmm. you know, about gender reassignment surgery? Right. And it's just grossly inappropriate. But I didn't really know that. And I was trying to do, believe it or not, a public service by at least talking about transgender individuals and trying to help people understand it. So my motives were actually Mm -hmm. pure, but my question was really clumsy. And I kept it in the show, and it got just... I remember I was on a plane going to CES. It was my birthday. (laughs) And I looked on Twitter, and oh, my God, I'm surprised there wasn't smoke coming out of my phone because it was just merciless. I mean, the scathing criticism I got. And I, of course, regretted that I kept it in, but I kept it in for the right reasons too. But I ended up, long story short, sorry, I'm going on and on about this, but I ended up saying, you know, I want to learn, I want to understand. I felt bad. I also felt, you know, defensive and upset. But ultimately I said, I need to educate myself and I need to help other people understand this community. Mm -hmm. So I did a documentary called Gender Revolution for National Geographic, and they were quite pleased with it. And I was happy that I was able to do it, and I learned a lot. So then they came back to me, and they said, would you like to do some more? So I didn't have a job at the time. um, (laughs) And I thought, and I think this is sort of the new way of working. You don't necessarily work for one company, right? You do it more project by project. For sure. and I had really done so pretty much every job in network news at this point in time. So I said, sure, I'd love to. And I came up with six topics that I thought deserved a little more analysis or exploration. And that's the series. And it's really been interesting and really, really exhausting. What are some of the topics? So I'm doing the first one is called Rewriting History but I'm spelling it R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. And it's really about our memorial landscape and Confederate iconography, statues, monuments that led me to Charlottesville right before and during that quote-unquote alt-right rally that, by the way, is not Charlottesville, Virginia. People have now associated this kind of bigotry and disgusting white supremacy as being relating to Charlottesville. It has nothing to do with Charlottesville. They picked Charlottesville because I think it's a progressive town. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's it's really on how these Confederate statues are dividing us, that they're so important for some Southerners who see it as celebrating Southern heritage and so offensive to black Americans who feel they are a real poke in the eye and supporting people who wanted to perpetuate the institution of slavery. So I just wanted to peep, I wanted to hear more about that. 
where the controversy started in Charlottesville, it was started by a 16-year-old African-American high school student who started a petition. And I went to see Mitch Landrew in New Orleans. I talked to Julianne Moore, who did a petition to change the name of her high school in Northern Virginia. And then I went and talked to Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative, who is just one of my personal heroes, about his project, which he's doing. You would love him. Mm-hmm. A lynching project where he has collected soil from the lynching sites, from 4,400 lynching sites throughout the South, because that's a chapter of our history that yeah. has literally been buried. Mm-hmm. And, well, not literally, but yes, literally and figuratively been buried. And he has taken the soil with the help of descendants of people who have been lynched and put it the soil in mason jars with the name of the lynching victim on the jar. And he has a whole memorial that he's opening in Montgomery in April. He's a very deeply thoughtful person. Does a lot of work with mass incarceration Mm -hmm. and with sort of the long tail of slavery and how it's affected race and African-Americans in this country long past the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So... Anyway, that's kind of like I mean, where can you really watch something like that on television? And is the is the what what would be success for you, not in terms of views or anything like that, but the the impact of an episode that on say a viewer is it is it that they change their mind? Is it that they it, they view an issue that before was just a soundbite or two headlines, and they see the shades of gray in something that is actually very nuanced? What do you hope? it will do I think to people. number two would be really good, yeah. you know, a deeper understanding, uh, a, a uh, I guess, remembering what it feels like to have empathy for yes. somebody's point of view, to um, have more context, to be able to talk about it in a more educated, intelligent way, to, I don't know, you just... There's so much surface stuff. You don't really know what's underneath, what lies beneath the story. And oftentimes I think if you do a little digging, then you just have you just understand it more and you can talk about it in a in a less knee-jerk way, in a more nuanced, less emotional, empathetic empathetic way, you know. Mm. These statues for a lot of people are deeply, deeply offensive. And I don't think they belong in public squares and public spaces, which are very important, you know, in terms of setting the tone for a community. That's why urban planners spend a lot of time thinking about these things. And uh, it's it's just thought-provoking. And I don't think we think about these things enough or have an opportunity to really talk about them. So that's just one. I'm doing one on what it's like to be a Muslim in America right now, Mm -hmm. because there's so many prejudices and misconceptions about Islam, about Muslims. And 50% of Americans say they've never met a Muslim. And so I'm trying to introduce some of them to those people, to Muslims virtually. And, um, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to just foster some kind of deeper understanding and connection for people with things that may seem foreign to them, with with things that they may feel strongly about but don't necessarily know why. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's because their friends do. Yeah, or maybe their beliefs aren't actually their beliefs at all. They're just the beliefs of their parents or their 
coworkers or whatever it is that they've absorbed. But yeah, they didn't or, arrive at it through thought. They were, right. It's, they or arrived it's at it what they've been fed from yeah. their from their news feeds. Sure. Through like-minded people who share their beliefs, and I don't know. It's it's kind of ambitious to even want to do that, and you know, I just have to keep trying because. That's what I enjoy doing, and I do think that I possibly could be a helpful conduit for people, a proxy for the average Joe or Josephine who is curious about the world and wants to understand it better and wants to meet people and talk to people and see if they can, I don't know, try to make sense of it all. I don't know. I think that's I think that's a very noble objective. I don't know. I don't. Uh, I think I think if you aim for that, even if you partially fail, you will still you will still create a lot of positive change, right? So it's like maybe. If, I mean, that would be certainly I mean, what I would tell myself. Yeah, you gotta. Tr- <laughs> I think you've got to try, and yeah. uh, I do think this younger generation is much more receptive to. You know, trying to change the world in a good way. You know, mm-hmm. you see those kids in Parkland, Florida, and it's just so moving. And so, um, you know, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it will, it'll maybe, I don't know, get people to talk to their friends about it and maybe counter some of the stuff that they're seeing and say, actually, you know, white extremists have committed three times the violent acts that Muslim extremists have committed since 9-11 or in the last 15 years. But the media coverage leaves you with the perception that's not the case. Right. And so we can all kind of just be more aware and, and more critical and not in a negative way, but critical thinkers mm-hmm. about the kind of information that's incoming. I know we only have a few minutes left. Uh, if you had a billboard, metaphorically speaking, and you could put a word, a phrase, a quote, any type of message or question to get out to millions or billions of people, what might you put on that billboard? I'm watching three billboards right now, so all <laughs> I can think of is the billboards that uh, Francis McDormand put up. Um, uh, you know, there's so many important things, right? I guess I would say... Uh, something about voting, you know, if you don't vote, you can't complain. Uh, and there because, are a lot of ways to vote too. I mean, I, I understand the literal. Yeah. Use of it, but, I mean, I think for yeah. me, it's actually voting it's in elections right. because I, I think it's what 55% of Americans voted. It was the worst turnout in it since I think in 1994 or something. And, and, I just don't understand how people can be that apathetic. They have to care about the country and they have to educate themselves about the issues. And I just, uh, it's just infuriating to me that people don't vote. And so, especially in the midterms, and they need to, they need to really hold our politicians accountable. And if they want to, you know, be the change they wish to see or whatever, they need to get involved in the political process. So I think that's what I would do. Like it infuriated me if people didn't vote in the last election or they threw away their vote by voting for someone that just would never be elected. Had no chance. Right. Right. 
And I felt like saying to them, that's a vote for the other person. If you're comfortable with that, you, you know, just so you know, that's helping elect someone you may not want to be president. And so I just, I just hope people take that really, really seriously. And I, I don't know. I just hope they vote for people for the right reasons, too. Yeah. And to focus on action instead of complaining. I think that you can simulate, you can create the illusion of action by jumping on social media and complaining. But Well, they call that slacktivism, right? Slacktivism. Yeah, you need to actually get up off your ass and make things happen. And part of that is engaging in ways like that. Yeah. Um, but that's, I think, what would you put on a billboard? <laughs> Damn fine question. <laughs> I would say I might put up... Uh, I've thought about this, of course, because I asked this question a fair amount. Uh, I would, I would put up. Uh, I'll give, I'll give two answers. I'm going to cheat, but the, the one that I usually say is, "You are the average of the five people you associate with most." So, psychologically, emotionally, politically, physically, you are going to be the average of the handful of people you spend the most time with. So, pick those people very, very, very carefully. Uh, and the, the other, I am actually stealing from B.J. Miller, who's a hospice care physician. Also a triple amputee. He was a warning story when I attended Princeton because a few years before he had been climbing on this commuter train called the Dinky and was wearing a big watch and electricity arced and burned off three of his limbs. Oh, my God. And he since became... At Princeton? At Princeton. And he, since, he, he oh ap- well, after that point, became an MD, has helped a 1,000 plus people to die with terminal diagnoses in something called the Zen Hospice uh, Center, but he, he's, he's since expanded beyond that. Where, where is that hospice San Francisco. Uh-huh. And they have a very uh, uncommon approach to death and, and shepherding people from a terminal diagnosis to ultimately passing, and they do it in a really beautiful way really? Uh, that, that I think lends peace to a lot of people. And, and when I asked him this question, uh, he, he also in turn... He said, got it from a bumper sticker. So, uh, who knows who ultimately said this? <laughs> but he said, I would put on a billboard, don't believe everything that you think. And I thought that was really profound to, to, to contemplate. That's good for my series. Yeah. Don't believe everything that you think. So I, I revisit that a lot myself. And that can be your beliefs about other people, but also your beliefs about yourself, the stories, the narratives that you escape to that ultimately don't serve you. Yeah, he um, um, sounds like a remarkable person. Has he gotten a lot of attention? Not enough. Not enough attention. Because I think he, he's like, incredible. of course, I immediately think this is an, a, a person I should you would love do this. a story you on. You would love him. He's, he's incredible. And so does he have prosthesis? He does. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he, has, he has prostheses or prosthetics. Yeah. And, and he, prostheses. Prostheses. Yeah. Prosthetics, whatever. Whatever it is. He has those. <laughs> And uh, we actually talked on the podcast. At some point, he mentioned in passing, he was like, well, the other week when I was riding my motorcycle, and then he kept going, and I said, wait, hold on. You're missing three limbs. You have a motorcycle? And he told me about this process he went through with the help of many people to custom modify a motorcycle. He, he wanted to be on a motorcycle to feel the wind in his face, and he rides a motorcycle. Wow. He's a fascinating guy and hilarious. B.J. Miller. And, Is he married? Uh, I don't think so, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm unsure. Yeah. yeah, but you met him when he spoke at Princeton. 
No, or this no. happened to him at Princeton. So I heard about him. I saw him initially in the, I believe it was the Princeton Alumni Weekly, the alumni magazine. And I tore out that page and I said, one day I'm going to track this guy down. I put it into a scrapbook. And that was before I ever started the podcast. And then at one point, I don't know how it happened exactly. It might have been an email from someone else who said, do you know who, it was an email from someone else. It was from a scientist at UCSF. He said, well, da-da-da-da, something-something, B.J. Miller. I said, wait a second, that rings a bell. Google search, oh, my God, that's that guy years ago. I said, someday I'm going to meet. And I said, I'll do one better. I want to interview him. And that's how it came to be. And so have you become friends? I would say we're definitely on friendly terms. I still haven't met him in person. Oh my gosh! Well, you have it to was do remote. that. And um, he's uh, he's an incredible, incredible man. You should do your podcast, you know, like on location sometimes, I would, because it I would really does like do that. Uh, lend a different feel to the podcast. Yeah. You could go to his. Actually, it would be incredible. You should go to his hospice. Yeah, and you should talk to some of his patients. That would would be so profound. And then put together, I'm talking to your producers over there, (laughs) and put together something that would be really beautiful. Because people, myself included, really don't, don't, still don't know how to talk about death. Yeah. They are terrified of it. I Mm -hmm. am. Yeah. Uh, And uh, I think that you would be doing such a public service to help help people kind of get a different perspective on dying if that's possible. If my own thinking about the subject is any indication based on conversations with people like BJ and based on speaking with someone like you and asking about grief, this is why I'm asking mm-hmm. because I don't, I don't yet feel like I have a complete toolkit for yeah. even thinking about it. And well, you should also read Sheryl Sandberg's book, yeah. um, option B. Yeah. Which I thought was really brave of her to write with Adam Grant, who's also yeah. great. You should interview Adam Grant, too. Adam's I think I should guy. just be, you know, you must know Adam, we've, right? We've traded email before. He's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. But um, you should read that book because I think it might be very useful for you. Great. No, I'll, I'll take a look at it. And uh, yeah, I, I actually was at a group dinner with her uh, you know, then husband just a few months before everything happened. You just never know. I mean, what if it's, right? you, you really just never, never know. know. So. I always think, wouldn't it be cool if people had a crystal ball and they would see what's coming? That That's such a, you know, it's always such a mystery. Like yeah. what's around the corner? And, um, you know, if you could somehow have a glimpse into the future, it's just crazy to think, but you, of course you can't. But sometimes I think about that. I do have two friends uh, I believe Kevin Kelly's one who's a fascinating, fascinating guy. We could talk about another time, uh, has an Amish beard, spends time with the Amish, but he's a technology futurist with an impeccable track record, lives really? in Silicon Valley, has built his own house. And he spends time with the Amish? Yeah. It's all because he's fascinated by how they choose to adopt technology or not. Oh. And, uh, in any case, uh, he and uh, another friend named Antonio, have Excel spreadsheets or clocks that they look at every morning that based on actuarial tables, tell them how many years, month, days, hours, and minutes they have left in their life, just as a reminder of their mortality. Jesus, no, thank you. Intense. But, um, <laughs> that is intense. So we are at time. Aww. And uh, hopefully we can continue the yeah, conversation no, this, someday. I really enjoyed talking to you, and I would love to interview you at some point. That would be an incredible honor. I I would love to do that. And 
in the meantime, people can see you at work and doing what you do best, America Inside Out, which premieres on National Geographic, uh, I believe, right? On National yeah. Geographic Channel, April 11th at 10 p.m., six-part uh, docu-series. So I will link to that in the show notes, as well as to everything that we've talked about already. Those Thank of you, you. I who, really appreciate uh, it. Of course, who listen, and those of you who watch, tim.blog forward slash podcast is where you can find links to everything on social media, at Katie Couric. On yeah. all the socials. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's, gosh, it's such a full-time job servicing all these social media <laughs> platforms, isn't it? It can be. But it's be. also really fun. I mean, I have to say, I'm really, I really enjoy using Instagram mm-hmm. because it's a way to feel, I, I don't know, you do get a sense of community with you Instagram. Do. It has a, it, it has the feel of a friendlier neighborhood too. It does. Compared to some of the others, which... Yes. Compared feel, to Twitter, feel which more can like be... a neighborhood where you walk down the street whistling and people just throw potted plants at your head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which isn't always how you want to feel. Yeah, if, exactly. you wanna, if you want to, if you want to be an insomniac, yeah, check your Twitter feed right before you go to bed. Oh yeah, uh, I got had a very funny situation where I couldn't sleep one night and I got on Twitter. I was using my device way too much. I did a whole hour on technology for this series as well, and uh, suddenly I'm in a conversation with. Chrissy Teigen, Valerie Bertinelli, and one other person, uh, I want to say Anna Gasteyer, we're all talking about not being able to sleep on Twitter (laughs) at like (laughs) three in the morning. It was so insane. And I was like, okay, this is social media. (laughs) Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk it? You're competing against companies who put billions of dollars into R&D to uh, throw everything scientifically vetted at your brain to distract. Uh, so you're completely outgunned. You're outgunned. I know. And, and that's one of my hours. And that's yeah. what I talked to Tristan about, that yeah. they manipulate you to keep you addicted yeah. with absolutely no responsibility or yeah. understanding. And should they? I mean, do you think that tech companies need to be held accountable for that? I think tech companies, uh, ultimately, if they're going to be as all-encompassing as they certainly appear to be, uh, do have uh, a moral obligation to think about the sh- the intermediate and long term implications of some of these technologies, even if they're just trying to protect their bottom line. So, for instance, I mean, hopefully, I'll take another minute or two. But if you look at autonomous cars, all right, so self driving cars, well, three million jobs, right? So, if you if you you can look at the job shifting, but you can also look at let's just say the decision making that will have to be embedded into the code itself. So if you have a car, let's say a car gets hit by a huge hailstone, which these things happen, right? whatever it might be, or a ball comes into the street and throws the car off course and has to choose between hitting, say, three school children on one side of the street or 10 uh, elderly people, how does it make the decision? And it's going to have to make a game time decision. Or are there times when the car sacrifices the driver? Is that dependent on your insurance premium? Is that there are some really gnarly moral problems and ethical challenges that previously were relegated to thought experiments like the you know the sort of trolley scenarios and things like that so they will they will need to have ethicists and so on to help advise the programmers who are developing the code so that these machines can make decisions so yeah they they have to think about it. it's crazy though it sounds like, like black mirror doesn't it i know <laughs> The future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. William Gibson, (laughs) thank you for that. And Katie Kirk, thank you so much. That would be a good billboard. It would be a good one. (laughs) And I would have to give dear Mr. Gibson a lot of credit for that. But 
Uh, everybody, check it out, American Inside Out. And Katie, hopefully to be continued. Thank you. It's so nice meeting you. Likewise. Thanks. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Soothe.com, the world's largest on-demand massage service. I have been broken so many times over the years that I usually have body work done at least once a week. I have a very, very high bar for this type of thing, and I was very skeptical of Soothe until I tested them not once, but I would say at least a dozen times around the country in different cities. I do not accept anything less than excellent for any type of soft tissue treatment, and I would not suggest that you accept anything less than excellent. So I can affirm personally that Soothe delivers a licensed, experienced, and above all effective, in my book, massage therapist in the comfort of your own home, hotel, or office in as little as an hour. So you can think of it as Uber for massages, available in 55 cities worldwide at this point, across the US, UK, Canada, and Australia, so you can relax just about anytime, anywhere. And I've tried many different types of massage that they offer, and the process is super, super simple. Download the Soothe app, that's S-O-O-T-H-E, or go to soothe.com. Choose the kind of massage you want. You can select Swedish, sports, deep tissue, or even couples massage. I usually do deep tissue myself. Or I'll do couples massage and then tell both of the therapists that I'm actually intending to get a four-handed massage instead of having two people get two-handed massages, if that makes sense. Then you set the length of your massage, whether 60, 90, or 120 minutes. If you're looking to get fixed, I usually do 90 or ideally 120. You select the gender of your therapist, and then boom, you're done. And you will see who picks up the call. The service is available from 8 a.m. to midnight, and Soothe brings everything that you need to create a spa experience in your home. And the therapist handles all of this. The massage table, linens, oils, music, the whole nine yards. So try it out. Download Soothe, and as a listener of this show, you'll get $25 off of your first massage when you enter the code TIM25, all caps, T-I-M-2-5. Again, download the Soothe app and use the code TIM25 for your $25 discount. This episode is brought to you by Peloton. And I'd heard about Peloton over and over again, but I ended up getting a Peloton bike in the whole system after I saw my buddy Kevin Rose. I've known him forever, some of you know, and he showed up at my gate at my house a while back, and he looked fantastic. <laughs> and, uh, I asked him, I said, dude, you look great. What the hell have you been up to? Because he's always doing a weird diet or another, but it only lasts like a week or two. So he always regresses to the mean after like 75 beers. 
and he said, I've been doing Peloton five days a week. Now that caught my attention because Kevin does nothing five days a week. And you know I love you, Kevin. But it really piqued my curiosity, ended up getting a system and it's become an integral part of my week. I love it and I really didn't expect to love it at all because I find cycling really boring usually. But Peloton is an indoor cycling bike that brings live studio classes right into your home. You don't have to worry about fitting classes into your schedule or making it to a studio with some type of commute, etc. New classes are added every day, and this includes options led by elite New York City instructors in your own living room. You can even live stream studio classes taught by the world's best instructors or find your own favorite class on demand. And in fact, Kevin and I rarely do live classes, and you can compete with your friends, which is also fun. Kevin, I'm coming after you, but we usually just use classes on demand. I really like Matt Wilpers and his high-intensity training sessions that are shorter, like 20 minutes. And I think Kevin's favorite is Alex, and everyone seems to have their favorite instructor, or you can select by music, duration, and so on. Each Peloton bike includes a 22-inch HD touchscreen, performance tracking metrics. I think that, along with the real-time leaderboard, are the main reasons that this caught my attention when cycling never had caught my attention before. It's really pretty stunning what they've done with the user interface to keep your attention. The belt drive is quiet and it's smaller than you would expect. So it can fit in a living room or an office. I actually have it in a large closet, believe it or not, and it fits with no problem. So Peloton is offering all of you guys, listeners of the Tim Ferriss Show, a special offer. And it is actually special. Visit One Peloton, that's O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N, OnePeloton.com, and enter the code TIM, all caps, T-I-M, at checkout to receive $100 off accessories with your Peloton bike purchase. Now, you might say, meh, accessories? Wait, I don't need fancy towels or whatever other supplemental bits and pieces. No, the shoes you need. You need the clip-in shoes, and those are in the accessory category. So this $100 off is a very legit $100 off. So if you want to get in your workouts, if you want a convenient and really entertaining way to do high-intensity interval training or anything else, or you just want to get a fantastic gift for someone, check out Peloton. OnePeloton.com and enter the code TIM. Again, that's O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com and enter the code TIM at checkout to receive $100 off any accessories, including the shoes that you will want to get. Check it out. OnePeloton.com, code TIM.